in the rise and fall of human systems. Light radiates in a pattern of expanding waves. Is there life elsewhere? How does it affect us? These are big questions. Yet the meaning of all this to us is far from ordinary. You are listening to Transistor, a science series from PRX. I'm Michelle Thaller, and I'm an astronomer at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. I grew up in Waukesha, Wisconsin, which is a suburb of Milwaukee. Back then, it was still kind of a farming community, and it had pretty dark skies. I remember the night sky being a pretty big part of my life. Specifically, there was a favorite time of day for me. My, my dad and I used to take night walks, and we would look up at the stars. And somehow walking with him on those very cold, still nights gave me this huge sense of the vast scale of the universe and how many wonderful things there must be out there. When you look at the night sky, you see these tiny little pinpricks of light up there. And a lot of people say, well, what's interesting about that? I mean, why would you study these very, very distant, very disconnected, cold little lights in the sky? And then you find out that these things are the biggest fires in the universe, and in a real way, everything you do in life is connected with these stars. The, the chemical energy I'm using to talk right now, my muscles that are moving, that originally came from the sun. And before you know it, you've got a whole planet being powered by these stars. These distant little pricks of light are responsible for everything. This one image that your eye is capturing as you look at a constellation, the stars that look like they're forming a pattern, it's not one moment in time. They are reaching your eye after different distances traveled. So you have to disconnect yourself from the idea of a single moment when you're an astronomer. Time is more of a fluid thing. Now, that's really what a telescope is. A telescope is a type of more powerful time machine because a telescope can see farther than the human eye can. It's more sensitive. It's a big, light bucket. Yeah, that's why telescopes are, are big, is because the larger telescope you have, the more light you gather. So we now have telescopes that can look back billions of light years. I mean, they can actually see so far away that when, that, when the light left the galaxy, in that case, and, and actually traveled over to your eye, that light's been traveling for longer than there's been an Earth or a sun. So that's the amazing thing about being an astronomer. You are a, really a time traveler. In, in a very, very literal sense, you can see into the past. When I became a professional astronomer, I got to use some of these really giant telescopes, the ones that can see very, very far away. And my specialty was studying very, very hot, massive, violent stars. And these stars put out a lot of ultraviolet light. Now, that's the high-energy light that gives you sunburns. So I went to Goddard Space Flight Center as a visiting astronomer when I was a graduate student. This would have been in the mid-90s. And I spent all day working with the astronomers there on this ultraviolet explorer telescope. Some of the space telescopes that I have personally used, like IUE, the International Ultraviolet Explorer, and Hubble Space Telescope, were actually started by this incredible woman at NASA called Nancy Grace Roman. And Nancy Grace Roman was actually the head of astrophysics, relativity, solar physics, and geodesy at NASA headquarters. Uh, she was actually working on the Hubble Space Telescope from 1965 to 1990. And uh, this year is a very special year for the Hubble Space Telescope because it's the 25th anniversary of the launch. And Nancy Grace Roman was somebody I was fascinated with because how is it that the first head of astrophysics at NASA was a woman? 
So I was really excited to finally get a chance to talk to one of my heroes. She's 89 years old now, and she really is the mother of the Hubble Space Telescope. In fact, there are people who call her Mother Hubble. I'm Nancy Grace Roman, an astronomer, and I started out, as most astronomers do, with a university job. But uh, And I was working on trying to understand the motion of stars in our Milky Way galaxy. Uh, and But uh, in my generation, women weren't very welcome at universities, and so I found a job in the government. And the government was appreciably more welcoming. People often ask me, they say, how is it you got interested in astronomy? And, and I don't have a good answer because I don't remember not being interested in astronomy. Do, do you remember sometimes in, in, in your young life where, where you said, this is what I, I have to do? No, I don't remember a particular time unless you consider between fifth and sixth grade, I organized my friends into an astronomy club to uh, study the constellations. We were living in the outskirts of Reno at that time, so we had a very dark sky clear dark sky and uh, we met once a week and thoroughly enjoyed it but in seventh grade I decided that there was no question that that was what I wanted to do with my life. You know when I think about starting the idea of space telescopes and Hubble one of the things that amazes me is that you were thinking about this idea when we still only had photographic film yes. when we had photographic plates and, and some of the things you were considering was, well, well, okay, if you used photographic plates up in orbit, how would you get them back down? Well, the, the DOD was doing it. That's right. But it was much too expensive for NASA. <laughs> the Russians uh, sent photographic plates to the moon, and they developed them on the moon and, sent, and digitized them and sent them back that way. But it was not a very satisfactory solution. So we never really seriously considered photographic plates. We were looking at, at uh, television cameras. And there was also the question about whether people would have to be up with the telescope. Well, that was, that was another matter. There's no question that the astronomers did not want people with the telescope. We were trying to get rid of an atmosphere, and people require an atmosphere. And besides which, I don't care how carefully a person plans to stay still. In the course of a half hour, he's going to wiggle. And that will wiggle the telescope, which was, again, another reason we don't want it. The Hubble Space Telescope was such a significant part of modern astronomy, and it's something you had worked on for so long. Was the actual day of the launch something memorable for you, or was it another day at work? <laughs> I think it was somewhere in between. The more memorable time was when they discovered the error in the mirror. And that, that I, do, I don't remember it as a specific date, but I certainly remember my reaction to it. I thought, are we, did I oversell it? But now that they got the mirror situation under control, I don't think I did. And, and what was the problem with the mirror? The problem with the mirror was that uh, it had been ground very, very accurately, but to the wrong figure. And uh, so, it, and what we did was essentially give it a pair of eyeglasses. <laughs> <laughs> it was only one, but uh, it was very discouraging. You know, this is something that is, is difficult to explain to people, that some of the, the, the real power of these space telescopes is, is how far, not just how far away you can see, but how far back in time you can see. And then it becomes extreme when you think about Hubble and then what James Webb will continue, that we are now looking back to within half a billion years of the beginning. We're looking back almost as far as we can possibly see, because we can't see the first few hundred thousand years. 
When you look up at the sky and you know that you're not seeing the stars all at the same point in time, has this changed the way you look at life? It certainly has had an effect on me, the fact that I recognize the, the vastness of the universe and I recognize how small the Earth is and how insignificant we are uh, compared with the universe as a whole that I think gives me a different impression of, of the meaning of, of life and the meaning of man. So as a time machine, the Hubble Space Telescope right now is as good as it's going to get. It has seen the farthest galaxies that we're currently able to see, galaxies that are more than 12 billion years old. But the Hubble Space Telescope, by today's standards, is actually a relatively small telescope. And the instruments see mainly invisible light. I mean, there's a little bit of detection in the infrared, which is light that's a little bit lower energy than your eye can see. But the vast majority of the data that Hubble gathers is from visible light. And we now know that this is probably not the best way to look at the universe. That if you can see farther into this infrared part of the spectrum, you can see inside star-forming regions that are obscured with dust clouds. And you can actually see farther back in time. It's a weird idea. So we knew we had to build the next generation of space telescopes. And currently we're building the James Webb Space Telescope at Goddard Space Flight Center. James Webb has a mirror that is seven times the size of Hubble's mirror. It's actually so big we couldn't build it in one piece. It's a segmented mirror. There are actually 18 different segments that fit together kind of like a honeycomb. And this telescope has incredibly sensitive detectors to see well into that infrared part of the spectrum. There's so many things you can see with infrared you can't with visible light. The James Webb Space Telescope is due to launch in 2018, and when it does, you know, I'm waiting for this revolution in our understanding of the universe. You know, one of the amazing things you can see with infrared are planets around other stars. When you think about it, I mean, planets don't glow in visible light. Whenever you see, say, Jupiter in the night sky, you're looking at reflected sunlight off of Jupiter. Jupiter's not glowing by itself in visible light. But planets like the Earth and Jupiter are warm. We actually give off heat radiation. And, and this is infrared radiation. This is the part of the spectrum that falls in. So you can see planets themselves around other stars, hundreds of light years away, when you can look in the infrared part of the spectrum. I'm obviously a big fan of the James Webb Space Telescope. At full disclaimer here, but my husband actually works on it. He's in charge of some of the building and testing of this telescope. Now, there are a lot of good things about working for NASA, but one of the most amazing things to do is spend your lunch hour watching different spacecraft being built. And at Goddard, we are currently building the James Webb Telescope. So there are these windows you can look in. Literally, I take my lunch. I watch what they're doing in there. And I also work with people whose job will be to study the universe with this telescope. And one of my better friends is a, a great person named Dr. Jane Rigby. Jane is an astrophysicist at Goddard, and she's currently the deputy project scientist for operations for the James Webb Space Telescope. Now, I may know the basics about what James Webb is going to do and what its capabilities are, but Jane knows a whole lot more than I do. So I asked Jane to come along on a little tour and tell me what was going on right now. So we're at Goddard Space Flight Center right now. We're looking in the window of a giant empty room. It's about six stories high, and it, it must be on the order of... I would say 300 feet across. And there's, there's people in here that are dressed head to foot in these white clean suits. They have masks over their faces. They have rubber gloves on. And they are building the James Webb Space Telescope, which is the follow-on to Hubble, except that the, the mirror is going to be seven times the size of Hubble. It's much, much more powerful. 
And I'm here with the amazing Dr. Jane Rigby, one of my, my favorite astrophysicists in the world. And, and Jane does a lot of work on the Hubble Space Telescope, and you're also looking forward, hopefully, to using James Webb. So what are we seeing here? Absolutely. So there is there are the pieces of the James Webb Space Telescope here in this clean room being put together so that we can launch it into space and use it. Above our heads, uh, on a mezzanine out of the way, are the 18 primary mirror segments. Uh, each one is a beryllium hexagon that's about a me across. Um, and <laughs> Are you being about five feet, I guess? <laughs> yes, and two inches, please. Let me have my two inches. Um, yeah, so they're, they're, I think, about five feet across because I'm a little bit bigger wingspan than they are. So there's 18 primary mirror segments in ball jars in a purged nitrogen atmosphere to keep them very clean. Those mirrors are all done and are waiting for the, the back plane that will hold them in place in space to be delivered here. And by the end of the summer, we will have what actually looks like a telescope right now. Those, those mirrors come out of boxes and get put into something that you can look at and say, oh, that's a telescope. So you, you see all these people here in these incredible protective suits. You know, Every inch of their body is covered. Like I said, they have masks over their faces. Why do we have to have a room this big and this clean? So there's a couple reasons. But the main one is that people are dirty and telescopes shouldn't be dirty. <laughs> So when we look at the expected performance of the telescope, right, how far back in a space can we see? One of the main contributors to that is how dirty the mirrors are. And I mean real dirt. I mean, when you look at it, how much of the surface has little specks of dirt and dust and hair and skin, because that's most of what dirt is, is people, that would keep us from being able to look as deep as we want to look into space. And so this clean room is actively monitored. There are little contamination meters all over, and regularly it's checked to see how clean things are. And in fact, the contamination monitors can measure how many people are in the clean room, how many people are exfoliating. Now, we were actually on the engineering floor, you know, it, behind the doors at Goddard Space Flight Center. It's pretty loud there. So we went back to my office to have a more quiet chat about what the ability to look back into deep space is really all about. Let's talk about the idea of a look-back time, because this is something that, you know, is not part of every everybody's life. But when you're an astronomer, a large part of your life is in some ways spent in the past. I think this is the coolest thing about astronomy that we see back in time, that every telescope is a time machine. I mean, in fact, your eyeball is a time machine. It just doesn't look back to interesting times, right? When you're looking at the moon, you're looking a couple seconds in the past. That's not very interesting, but if you can look at even stars you can see with your eyes out at night, those are tens of light years away. So we're seeing them as they looked tens of years in the past. Again, still not that interesting. But if we start looking at other galaxies, then we're looking thousands to millions to billions of years back in time. Um, And it's just a simple consequence of the fact that the universe is really big and the speed of light, while the fastest thing that's allowed, isn't all that fast compared to how big space is. Is it anything that you you think about as far as your your personal life and philosophy that we live in this extended period of time, that part of being an astronomer is a bigger picture than just a moment in time being right now? I mean, you use the Hubble Space Telescope as part of your work, but your workplace is sometime billions of years ago. Does that change the way you look at the world at all? I think when you're an astronomer, you can't help but think in terms of billions of years. 
and in terms of times in billions of years and in, in distances in terms of light years or thousands or millions of light years. That doesn't mean you're not just as impatient as the next person for the train to come in four minutes, but you're thinking about timescales that are so much longer than yours, that are even longer than the history of our species. You know, our species isn't even a million years old. We're so young. And even, you know, hominids of any sort, not that much longer. And so it does change your perspective in terms of how unique it is that there's life on Earth, that there's intelligent life on Earth. Astronomy is the ultimate long view. So you talk about studying things that are billions of light years away. They happened billions of years ago. Why? I mean, what is it about something so remote that can fascinate you? I think there's two reasons that astronomy is exciting and important. One is it's just fun and interesting and awesome. You know, we can study things like, you know, neutron stars that are spinning really fast and black holes that are, you know, eating up matter in their neighborhoods and galaxies that are colliding and, and stripping off these tails. And it's just, it's neat. It's so far outside of the kind of stuff that we have in our, in our daily lives. The other reason, though, is that, you know, this can seem out in space and far away, but it's all our past. It's all the same kind of stuff that happened to our galaxy and even to our atoms. Um, I think that um, one of the most important things astronomy has ever done is tell us where the atoms in our bodies come from and the atoms around us. Um, you know, the, uh, all the iron... Uh, all the gold, um, I got a wedding ring on, okay, that was made in the heart of a star, so was all the iron. The carbon and nitrogen and oxygen are, are made a little further out, but they're all made in stars. You know, if there hadn't been these processes of stars forming and you know, galaxies evolving, the universe would be so boring and we couldn't be here because all it would be is hydrogen and helium and, you know, none of us, no trees, no people. And so, Astronomy is the story of where it all came from. And all of it is a lot of it, but it includes us. Where do we come from? So Jane Rigby is looking forward to answering the same questions that Nancy Grace started to answer with the Hubble Space Telescope. In some ways, Nancy Grace Roman and Jane Rigby are a continuation of the same question, the, the same need to understand the universe. I love looking at Nancy Grace Roman, this incredible pioneer, and seeing how her work is still playing out in a young astronomer, Jane Rigby. You know, it, it seems like a lofty goal. Uh, James Webb, Hubble Space Telescope, we're trying to answer where we came from. Every single step of that question, I mean, not only do, where do planets come from, where do stars come from, where do galaxies come from, you know, we're, we're trying to take that all the way back to where did the universe come from. So for the James Webb Space Telescope, we're going to get a lot closer to finding the answer to that. We hope to really see evidence of the very first stars beginning to shine, the very first galaxies forming. And after that, we have a, a ringside seat with this giant telescope in the sky to show us how the universe evolved step by step, how it went from nothing but hydrogen gas, the simplest stuff you can think of, to you. And when James Webb launches we're going to have a better answer.
The Transistor Podcast Series is brought to you by PRX. This episode was produced by Lauren Ober with help from Whitney Jones. It was supported by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance. More information at sloan.org. Special thanks to the studios of WUWM in Milwaukee for their help recording this episode.